Welcome to the Ransomed Heart Podcast. I'm Alan Arnold, and this summer we're doing a podcast series we titled Love and War. If you haven't heard part one of the series, it aired last week, so I encourage you to start there. This week is part two of the series, and we pick up with the second great shock of marriage. Now, if you heard last week's podcast, you'll know the first shock is marriage is hard. But the second great shock, which usually follows right on the heels of the first one, is that both people in the marriage are a royal mess. <laughs> now, and that, doesn't that seem like it, impossible at first? Because when you were dating, they were perfect and you were perfect. And now nobody's perfect. And that's what we're going to talk about in this podcast. It's from chapter three of the book, Love and War. And the title of the chapter is A Perfect Storm. I fell into a burning ring of fire. Johnny Cash. So, God creates Adam and Eve, man and woman. He brings them close together, about as close as two living beings can get, murderously close. He puts them in a marriage, and they all live happily ever after, right? Why are you laughing? What was that cynical snort? Just this morning, Stacy and I were talking about marriages we know, and we came to a sobering realization— We can't name one single marriage that hasn't been through deep waters in the last three years. Not one. And we know a lot of people, and therefore a lot of marriages. Between family, friends, church, work, and the neighborhood, you think we would be able to point to some couple who is trouble-free. We can't. We can't find one. Not one. Every single married couple we know is either currently struggling or has just passed through some major struggle, or has thrown in the towel. Now, we would love to blame all the hardships of marriage on the great battle swirling around us, but that would not be altogether honest, would it? There are other dynamics at work. The sooner we understand them, the sooner we will be able to see why love can so quickly turn to war between husband and wife. We do have an enemy who is hell-bent on destroying us, But we also have ourselves and our spouse to contend with, each of us with a history, a personality, and a unique approach to making life work. It can feel like desperately trying to mix oil and water, or something more combustible. Opposites do attract. Stacy likes to talk, especially in the morning as we're heading into the day, or in the evening when we are getting ready for bed. I'll be standing in the kitchen in the morning and she'll start a conversation from the bedroom and she'll just carry right on even though I am running the blender and no rabbit could possibly hear a thing she's saying. Then she'll walk into the room and ask, well? Or at night, she'll wait until I'm brushing my teeth to start telling me a story from a room away and I've got the sound of a car wash in my head and I can't discern half of what she's holding forth on. It drives me nuts. Like many married couples, Stacy has her car and I have my car, a Honda and a Ford pickup, respectively. We'll be headed off on some errand or other, jump into my car, and the first thing she'll do is start changing the channel on the radio or start punching the buttons to change the temperature. I'll give her a look like, what are you doing? And she'll say, what? She doesn't even get it. It drives me nuts. And then there are the lights. Whatever room we are in, Stacy likes the lights dim. 
I call her a salamander. She likes it dark and cool. I, on the other hand, love a room as bright as it can be. Now, we'll be sitting in the room together, and Stacy will just get up and dim down the lights. Drives me absolutely nuts. John likes to smell things before he eats them, like a cat. He'll open a box of cereal and smell it before he takes a bite. I'll offer to share my bag of chips with him, and he'll smell them before taking one. He does it with fruit, with milk, a jar of mustard, with anything that could possibly in its lifetime go bad. It drives me crazy. And he has this habit of getting up and walking out of the room without saying where he's going or why. We'll be in the middle of a family time together, and he'll just get up and walk out. I'll go look for him and find him in the garage doing something. What? He says. He'll even leave the house in the same fashion, just up and go out the door and be gone without a goodbye or I'm running to the office or anything. We were on a rare date on our way to see a movie and we were running a bit late. It had taken me a little longer to gather myself together before leaving. John calls this futzing. But really, I reasoned we should have plenty of time if we hurry. We pulled into the parking lot on this crowded Friday night and approached an open parking space. Great, this will be quick, I think. John passed it by. He continued down the road, passing by two more perfectly acceptable parking spaces and tried another row. He was driving around searching for the best spot he could find. And he was driving me crazy. I am a woman who needs and craves structure. I function best within parameters. A schedule, albeit a flexible one, is my friend. In managing our home, I keep a large master calendar. When are the bills due? Who has what going on when? And what does that require of whom? Particularly me. I don't like to have things sprung on me at the last moment. Don't throw me a surprise party. It will not go well. When my days are topsy-turvy, I feel unbalanced inside. I am happiest when I know what's coming and when. When decisions have been made and when I can check things off of my to-do list. I don't handle change well at all. John is the exact opposite. He likes choices, open-ended discussions. When he talks, it is not because he has made up his mind, like me, but because he is thinking through his options. He likes to go with the flow. It drives me crazy. Now, add to our personality differences the fact that he's a man and I'm a woman. You get two people so opposite from one another, they are often a complete mystery to the other. I like to relax in a hot bath with lavender bubbles. This doesn't appeal to John at all, not one bit. Sometimes when he's stressed, I'll suggest a hot bath and he'll look at me like I just suggested he paint his fingernails. I enjoy watching cake decorating shows. John is hooked on man versus wild. He likes the occasional cigar. I don't like the smell. I love scented candles. John abhors them. A treat for me is getting a pedicure. An amazing day for John is going bow hunting. And we live together in the same house. It's a wonder we don't kill each other. Sometimes we drive each other crazy simply by being ourselves. Puddleglum had it right. But we all need to be very careful about our tempers, seeing all the hard times we shall have to go through together. Won't do to quarrel, you know. At any rate, don't begin it too soon. I know these expeditions usually end that way, knifing one another. C.S. Lewis, The Silver Chair.
It's a wonder we haven't come to knives. Learning to live with our opposite and all their little quirkiness is part of learning to love. Love is a rock, Shun Mullins sings, smoothed over by a stream. We want love to be stable and immovable like a rock, steady and sure. But that stream part is another matter. Some force constantly washing over us, smoothing our rough edges. We don't much go in for that. But let's face it. We've all got some roughness to our personalities, don't we? We've all got a good bit of smoothing over to do. For this wonderful process, God gives us each other. Marriage is the rushing stream God uses to shape us into more loving people. The Second Great Shock For some reason, I remember this conversation vividly. We were driving up Interstate 25 through Colorado Springs, a young friend and I, when he made the following pronouncement, I'm so glad that Megan's not broken. He was talking about the girl he was about to get engaged to. I tried to suppress the raising of my eyebrows, said nothing in hopes that he would continue with his train of thought. I mean, think of all the gals in our community. Most of them are really a mess. Megan is not. She's good. I just kept looking forward, nodded, and said something like, That's great. He wasn't ready for what I had to say. I mean, enjoy the balloon while you can. I don't need to be the one to pop it. Inside, something sad sort of sighed. Brother, you are in for one heck of a shock. It is six years later, and he would describe this last year as the most difficult of his entire life. It turns out there was a lot more brokenness to Megan than he thought. There always is. The first big shock we receive in marriage is that it is hard. The second great shock usually follows hard on the heels of the first, that we are, both of us, a royal mess. Why is he so defensive? Why doesn't she enjoy sex? How come he withers under criticism? Why is she so clingy? What is this simmering rage just beneath the surface? Where did this addiction come from? Why won't you talk to me? Who are you? Probably the truest place to pick up the story of any marriage is many years beforehand, in the story of the little boy and the little girl who will one day fall in love and pledge their lives to each other. I brought into our marriage a wounded heart and deep, profound insecurity. The defining wound in my life came when I was three years old, while sitting at the kitchen table watching my mother prepare dinner. She told me for the first time, but not the last, how devastated she had been when she learned she was pregnant with me, how she wept to learn that I was coming. Her words pierced my heart with the message, you are a disappointment. Your very existence causes pain. Like every other little girl, I came into the world with a question deep in my heart that went something like, do you delight in me? The answer I received from my mom's pain was no. As profound of an impact a mother has on her daughter, her father has an even greater one. So as a child, like every other child, I primarily brought my heart's question to my dad. As a traveling salesman, my father would be gone for two weeks at a time, then be home for a weekend, then hit the road again for two weeks, then be home for another weekend. He was not unkind to me when he was around. He just wasn't around. 
a blossoming alcoholic with a difficult marriage. My father would stop for a few drinks at a bar, even in neighbors, before entering our front door. This was his routine until I was 10 years old. After that, his promotion and his souring relationship with my mom kept him at the office for long hours. I would go many days without seeing him, thinking he was out of town. He was simply staying away. The message I received as a little girl and our flailing family was, don't rock the boat or this boat will go down. I didn't feel delighted in. I didn't even feel seen. The last of four children born too close together to an overwhelmed mother and an absent father, I learned early to keep to myself, hiding my true self from the eyes of my busy parents. I believed if I needed too much or caused discomfort to my parents, the wobbly world as I knew it would topple. I didn't want to be the one to cause our family to sink. The world is a dangerous and precarious place, Too many wrong moves on my part, and I would destroy it. I brought all that into our marriage. I believed John loved me, kind of, but I was perched in wariness, just waiting for the other shoe to drop. I believed to my core that I was a disappointment, so I desperately tried to be the woman that I thought John wanted me to be. I would not offer my husband my true self, because I believed that the truest me would not be wanted. I tried to figure out how to never rock the boat in my relationship with John, who was, at the time of our union, an unrepentant perfectionist, and it couldn't be done. He corrected me on how I chopped vegetables for soup. He re-ironed shirts that I ironed for him. His smallest dissatisfaction with anything pertaining to me was interpreted by my wounded heart to mean I am utterly disappointed in you. I loved my husband, but I was afraid. And so I hid by gaining weight, by refusing to share my true feelings, by refusing to confront John on things he needed to be confronted on. I developed a way of relating in my marriage that protected me from further wounding. It seemed like the perfectly reasonable thing to do, and it almost destroyed my marriage. The defining wound of my life was my father's alcoholism. Every little boy carries an essential question in his heart, too, but it is unique to men. Do I have what it takes? And a little boy looks to his daddy for the answer to that question. My father wound, and multiple wounds thereafter, is abandonment. No one will ever be there for you. It's one of the ruling sentences of my life. That's my brokenness. There's a long history of that and a lot of story to it, but enough story that my young heart came to believe that to be pretty true. That's my reality. That's the way the world works. No one will ever really be there for you. You are on your own. And I discovered pretty early on that I was smart enough and articulate enough to make life work just fine on my own. I became a frightened, driven perfectionist, certain that love does not last and committed to self-protection under the banner, I will never need anyone. A woman with deep wounds of disappointment marries a man she cannot possibly please. Her fear that she will never really be loved meets his commitment to never need anyone. That's like someone with a fear of heights taking a job cleaning windows on the Empire State Building. 
a man with deep abandonment wounds from his father's addiction, marries a woman whose deep addiction will cause her to withdraw from him. His fear that what he has to offer will never be enough meets the chasm in her heart that no amount of love could possibly fill. The way these things play into each other is chilling. You could not script a more frightening scenario. Opposites attract, all right. Our mutual brokenness is drawn together like a match and gunpowder. And God is in that, by the way. He is the author of your marriage. He planned this. Our brokenness combines with our sin and produces a style of relating, an approach to life, which to us feels so utterly justified and so perfectly reasonable, but in fact is the very thing that will destroy us and all those around us. What is God thinking? When it comes to high-level expeditions, one piece of advice that veterans unanimously urge is this. Choose your tent mate carefully, for you are going to spend weeks to months on end shut in by foul weather in the forced intimacy of a tiny fabric cocoon with this person. By the time it is over, everything about him will drive you mad. The way he eats, the way he breathes, the way he hums show tunes, or the way he picks his nails. To keep yourself from a Donner Party ending, you must start with people you are utterly compatible with. God does the opposite. He puts us with our opposite. Our mutual brokenness plays off each other so perfectly that it is frightening. It's like throwing a dog and a cat in a dryer. Is he absolutely mad? Why would God do such a thing? Because marriage is a divine conspiracy. It is a conspiracy divinely arranged and with divine intent. God lures us into marriage through love and sex and loneliness or simply the fact that someone finally paid attention. All those reasons that you got married in the first place. It doesn't really matter. He'll do whatever it takes. He lures us into marriage and then he uses it to transform us. Come back to the fairy tales. In every one of those stories, the boy and the girl each carry a fatal flaw. If they refuse their transformation which is essential to the plot of the story. They'll never make it. Evil will win, they will lose heart and split up, and there will be no happily ever after. Shasta, giving to feeling sorry for himself, is defensive. Erevis, holding a rather high view of herself, is dismissive. They are continually at odds, and the Chronicles of Narnia story cannot reach its climax until Shasta stops grousing and Erevis humbles herself. In Beauty and the Beast, Beauty is a prima donna, and the Beast has anger management issues. She must find her courage, and he must find his tenderness. In every one of those stories, happily ever after waits upon a particular turn of events, at the center of which is the character's transformation. This all goes back to Adam and Eve. They fell, of course, and their sin is our sin. It has infected men and women ever since. As a man, Adam was endowed with the image of God primarily in his strength, a strength given him for the benefit of others. 
It's not about big muscles, but about inner strength. Notice that when men fail, they tend to fail in one of two ways. Either they become passive and silent, or they become domineering and violent. They either don't offer their strength, or they wield it in harmful ways. I did both. I was utterly passive when it came to offering Stacy intimacy. I ran and hid at work, and I was practically violent in my driven perfectionism. As a woman, God endowed Eve with beauty, an inner beauty often expressed as tenderness and vulnerability. Notice that when women fail, they tend to either become controlling or desperately needy. Either they refuse to offer vulnerability or they ask their man to fill the ache in their soul. I did both. My weight was a way of controlling my world and insulating myself from intimacy. My fear that I was a disappointment kept me from offering my true self, and yet I would look to John to fill me. We all have a way that we do life. We might call it our personality or our natural bent, the way we handle pressure, the way we listen, the way we look for happiness, the way we control our world. We didn't sit down one day and willfully choose to adopt it, but it remains a choice nonetheless. Call it our style of relating. It is a carefully crafted approach to life, especially to relationships that colors the way we work, the way we love, the way we respond, and the way we simply have a conversation with people. This can be quite an epiphany. You have a style of relating designed to make life work for you. Our style of relating is born out of brokenness and sin, and it is the number one thing that gets in the way of real love and real companionship, the shared adventure and all the beauty of marriage. It is really this simple. The number one thing that gets in the way is your way. I don't mean insisting on getting your way, dimming the lights or finding a better parking spot. I mean your way of going about life, your style of relating. We are, all of us, utterly committed and deeply devoted to our style, our way, our approach to life. We have absolutely no intention of giving it up, not even for love. So God creates an environment where we have to. It's called marriage. Take the fundamental differences of a man and a woman. Add to this the fact that opposites attract and our peculiarities are nearly always at odds. Toss in our profound brokenness, our sin, and our style of relating. It's the perfect storm. Now, listen carefully. God wants us to be happy. He really does. I've come, Jesus said, that you may have life and have it to the full. John 10, verse 10. He simply knows that until we deal with our brokenness, our sin, and our style of relating, we aren't going to be happy. Nobody around us is going to be very happy either. Most of what you've been experiencing in the last 12 months is God's attempt to get you to face your style of relating and repent of it. When I was a child, I talked like a child. I thought like a child. I reasoned like a child. When I became a man, I put childish ways behind me. 1 Corinthians 13. This is the old Christian understanding of the world, the understanding that happiness is the fruit of other things, chief among them our own holiness. And so we must undergo a transformation. 
we must be smoothed over. Just like the fairy tales, we must share in God's holiness before the story is finished. This flies in the face of the more popular view of the world that's crept in recently, the happiness view. This is the idea that frames most people's expectations of marriage and everything else. The view that we are here for our happiness, and therefore others better make us happy. So it comes as quite a disruption when we begin to realize that God might have other things in mind. Learning to love. Life ought to be better with you than without you. It certainly isn't supposed to be harder, for heaven's sakes. We describe the first shock of marriage as that moment we discover it is hard, and the second shock as that moment we realize that both of us are a royal mess. This is actually quite hopeful because these discoveries lead us to the secret of life. We are here to learn how to love. A new command I give to you, Jesus said. Love one another as I have loved you, John 15. This is a love story after all. And what does learning to love look like? Well, for one thing, it looks like compassion for your spouse's brokenness while choosing to turn from your own self-protective style of relating. We must come to face our style, of course. As men, we look to where we are passive and where we are domineering, harsh, or violent. As women, we face where we are controlling and where we are desperately clingy. And as God reveals these things, we make those thousand little choices to turn from our style of relating. We make deliberate choices to love. If you have been avoiding conflict, either as a passive man or a controlling woman, then you say, conflict is okay. Let's talk about these things. I'll go there with you. If you've been avoiding intimacy, then you say, I need you. I don't want to be this island, this impenetrable fortress. I choose to engage. If you've been controlling, then let go of control. If you've been hiding, then come out of hiding. If you have been filled with anger, then set aside your anger and choose to be vulnerable. Can you honestly talk together about your styles of relating? Do you even have a clue what yours is? Ask God. It can feel daunting, risky, and too vulnerable to talk with your mate about this right away, but it's a good conversation to have. Not one of judgment and accusation, but one of truth being spoken in love to help you understand and love each other better. Now, it would be very, very helpful for you both to know the story of each other's lives. Ladies, do you know the story of your husband's life? Gents, do you know the story of your wife's life? Over the past several years, safe in the trusted confidants of our small group, six of us took turns sharing our story. We took an evening each and told the story of our lives. Starting with our childhood, we spoke of memorable moments, the painful ones as well as the happy ones. We unfolded the pages of our lives. And even though each couple had been married for more than two decades, husbands and wives heard new stories that profoundly impacted them. Countless aha moments, many tears, much mercy. It was a beautiful beginning to come to know one another in a deeper, more substantive way. Pieces of the puzzle of each other's personalities began to fit into place. Oh, that's why you hate to talk on the phone. Or, 
So is that why you feel so defensive to me? Now I get it. Understanding your spouse by understanding the unfolding story of their life is priceless. You can come alongside your spouse and help them to overcome difficulties so much easier and more tenderly when you understand where they are coming from. I think when we begin to understand each other's brokenness, we'll find a great deal more compassion for actions that were previously simply driving us nuts. Making the time to really hear your husband's story or your wife's story will be time well spent. We want to encourage you to do this. Give each other a few hours, ask questions, listen, invite God to guide and fill the time. It will bear so much good fruit. From changing you to changing me. We were driving home from a matinee one wintry afternoon earlier this year when John asked me, why do you think you are so angry? Huh? What? Where did this come from? We were having a pleasant afternoon together when all of a sudden he asked me that? I was feeling happy. Until then, we're having a nice time together, I said rather defensively. Why are you asking me that now? John responded, after all our years of marriage, Stacy, I've learned that there isn't ever a good time to ask you a question like that. Okay, true enough. Though the timing was startling, the question wasn't. I had been talking with God just that morning about what I had become aware of inside of me, an unsettled anger, a rage, really. I would feel it erupt, unbidden, not in response to a situation or to a person, but seemingly having a source all its own. And my anger was increasing. I was abrupt, short, abrasive with our children and with my friends. I had been damaging the relationships I cared most about for longer than I realized, and I didn't know why. I wanted to change, but I wasn't able to do it on my own. I needed help. John thought it would be helpful for me to receive some counseling. John and I talk, of course, but we have found that it's best for a husband and wife not to take on the role of counselor. We've both been to counseling in the past, once during the early years of our marriage and then both of us separately around 14 years ago. God provided a gifted and spirit-filled woman who was willing and able to be strong and truthful to me, all the while staying connected in love. Re-entering the counseling office this year was a great gift. God timed it in such a way that I started in the early spring in what became a year of unprecedented loss, grief, growth, repentance, healing, and change. God is changing me, and I praise Him for it. I can actually say the rage is mostly gone, and with it, my destructive style of relating. I'm growing in knowing my true identity in Christ and my value in Him like never before. I regret the pain I caused others, but I am resting in the full work of Christ, which is more than enough for me and all my failures. Becoming more fully His is freeing me to love my husband and to love the others He gives me so much more in the way God desires. Healing is possible. It's available. Oh. Hooray! As I tried to think of stories that illustrated the wounding I received from my father, I couldn't think of any that had weight to them. Stories that have brought me to tears in prior years now seem small and really insignificant. 
Jesus has healed my broken heart, and he has removed the sting of death from my growing up years. I remember the situation, the words, but the memories hold no grief. But God is going even further. When I think of my father now, I think of how much he loved me. I am remembering small moments, little presents, kind words, and tiny acts which I had forgotten. I am remembering his laughter and his many invitations to me to engage with him. Conversations, ping pong games, beach days, practical jokes he played on my mom. I'm remembering bringing him joy and being delighted in. God is rewriting my personal history. There is a lightness to my step. My heart is glad. I didn't even know this kind of healing and freedom was available, but it is. In heaven, my father is happy and so is my mom. There is no bitterness and no regret, only love. I am asking God to bring his healing to every area of my life and every broken place of my heart. Like the leper in Matthew, I am asking him to heal if he is willing. And do you remember his never-changing answer to the leper, to me, to you? He says, I am willing. Matthew 8, verse 3. And can I say what a gift Stacy's decision to pursue her own healing has been to me and to our boys? It was a courageous and humble act, and the fruit has been wonderful. I hope she can say the same of me. Though God's invitation came a little more violently in my case. Two years ago, I was thrown from a horse. My left wrist was broken and my right wrist was dislocated and I needed surgery. I was in double cast for nine weeks. I could not tie my shoes. I could not button a button. I could not cut a stake. I couldn't do a single thing for myself. It was profoundly disrupting to a man who long ago honed a style of relating where I will never need anyone. But what absolutely broke my heart was to see Stacy's joy in finally being needed. She lit up. She was so happy to help me tie my shoes. I felt like a burden, an imposition, but she was so happy to help me get dressed in the morning. She washed my hair. She was so happy to do things for me. And I saw in that the story of our marriage. Her joy was because it had been so rare for me to need her. God brings in disruption to say, John, your style of relating is horrible. It does untold damage. You have to look at this. You have to begin to let me dismantle that old style of relating and create something new in you. My journey has involved forgiving the people who hurt me long ago, beginning with my father. It has involved renouncing the vow that I will never need anyone. And then there are the thousand little choices we make every day in which we either fall back into our old style or we choose to live differently in order to love. I need to let Stacy help me. When I see the perfectionism springing up, I let it go. And writing this book together has been a wonderful opportunity for that. Two kinds of people. Why do you look at the speck of sawdust in your brother's eye and pay no attention to the plank in your own? How can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye when all the time there is a plank in your own, you hypocrite? First, take the plank out of your own eye, 
and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Matthew 7, 3-5 There are two kinds of people in this world, the clueless and the repentant, those who are open to looking at their life and those who are not, folks who know they need God to change them and folks who expect everyone else to change. We have great hope for the first group. The second bunch are choosing ignorance. The damage they are doing is almost unforgivable. This is why the, quote, apply some principles approach to marriage improvement doesn't work. So long as we choose to turn a blind eye to how we are fallen as men or women and to the unique style of relating we have forged out of our sin and brokenness, we will continue to do damage to our marriages. We will add to our spouse's hopelessness that things will never change. You don't want to add cynicism and resignation to your marriage. You want your spouse to experience, she is really changing. He is really thinking about his impact on me. That inspires so much hope. It awakens so much desire. Something begins to stir in our hearts. Wow, this could get good. I mean, we could really go places here. This begins to happen when we shift the focus of our energy from needing the other person to change, as in, if only you would change, my life would be so much better, to asking God, how do I need to change? What would happen in your relationship if you could both make the shift from changing you to changing me? Amazing things begin to happen as we accept the plot of the story. When we not only realize but come to embrace the truth that this is about our transformation. All the happiness we long for waits upon our willingness to be made holy, to learn to love. Stacy and I are at the time of life now where we are attending the weddings of our friends' children. A new generation is taking their vows. We sit there and smile. We are genuinely happy for them. Happy they have found each other. Happy they are starting out on their journey. We also know that these newly married couples have no idea what they're getting themselves into. That is part of the smile. Now, we're not sadists. The years have simply reconciled us to the fact that we are all here for our transformation. And we understand that there is no place on earth quite like marriage for the kind of transformation God is after. You've been listening to John and Stacy Eldridge read from Chapter 3 of their book, Love and War. Now, just as we did last time, I'd like to leave you with a couple of questions for you and your spouse to talk about between now and the next part of our series. Here's the first question. Can you name some of the ways your brokenness collides with your spouse's brokenness? It's really good to name, and it's really good to know, and it's great to go there together. So that's question number one. Question number two And be honest now, how much of your frustration, anger, disappointment comes from wanting your spouse to change? How much of your energy is spent trying to get your spouse to change versus accepting the change God is seeking in you? Two really deep questions, deep waters to go into. I hope you'll do that together with your spouse. And I hope you'll join us next week for part three of the Love and War podcast series. I'm Alan Arnold, and you've been listening to the Ransom Tart Podcast.